Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show. I'm Alex Hull, your host for tonight's show, and I'm going to be chatting with three guests tonight. Chris Clark on his interview with Phil Collins, Bob Dickinson on his feature Anti-Work Work, and Lauren Velvick on her profile of Jade Montserrat. All of these feature in our March issue of the magazine, so I highly recommend that you grab yourself a copy directly from our website, www.artmonthly.co.uk. I'd like to welcome my first guest, Chris Clark, to the Art Monthly talk show. Chris is a critic and senior curator at the Glucksman in Cork, and he is here today to talk with me about Bring Down the Walls, a film by the British-born artist and filmmaker Phil Collins. Chris, perhaps we could start with you telling me who is Phil Collins and when did you first encounter his work? Um, so Phil Collins is a, um, I guess you'd say a UK artist, um, although he's worked internationally for several years now. I first came across his work actually back when I was living in the UK in Manchester. Um, I think he was involved in the British Art Show 6 and I remember seeing his work there and then over the years kind of following his practice, seeing a few shows, um, uh, certainly when I was working in corner house in Manchester uh, there was an exhibition after I had left but I went back to see it of his uh, Marxism Today prologue film um, and then I met him probably about 10 years ago or so in Cork when he was overdoing a project as well um, and so yeah when I, I came across this this most recent project of his um, and saw the film of it um, it certainly seemed like something I'd want to reach out and kind of have a discussion with him about um, this particular um, approach that he has and some of the kind of political ideas that he he tends to express through this kind of love of house music. So Bring Down the Walls is a film that explores the prison industrial complex within America. Critical Resistance, a US grassroots organization that works to dismantle the prison industrial complex and founded by prison abolitionist activists Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore defined the prison industrial complex as a term used to describe the overlapping interests of government and industry that use surveillance, policing, and imprisonment as solutions to economic, social, and political problems. How did Phil Collins become interested in the American prison system, and how does he deal with the complexity and scale of the prison industrial complex within the film? I mean, that's a good question because um, it's just such a, a broad and, and kind of daunting thing to be, to be dealing with. And I think he's aware as well, coming at it from something of an outsider as well, um, so that's something that he kind of builds into his practices, kind of, um, he very much kind of goes in as somebody who's, who's an ally, I think, and, and kind of, uh, and, and wants to facilitate kind of engagement or kind of activism in that, in, in that way. Um, he had done, um, for the past decade, decade or so, he'd been working with um, uh, prisons, prisoners in Sing Sing, um, previously incarcerated in, individuals, um, and kind of discussing their experiences. And I guess, also really kind of tapping in this idea that it's not so much about prison reform, uh, which is the term that always gets bandied about, but uh, really about prison abolition, that the prison system itself, um, and certainly the way it's realized in America at the moment, uh, is uh, kind of wholly uh, racist. <laughs> um, it's a prejudicial system. It's, um, it's the, the benefits that it kind of claims in this kind of mantra of law and order that's been kind of a persistent reclaim through American politics for the last several decades. Um, is one that is actually a, a mode of disenfranchising large groups of people. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, his practice as well, you know, going back for the last 20 years or so, has often been about disenfranchised communities. And I'm thinking of um, the work he did with uh, young people in Ramallah, 
uh, where he uh, had them uh, dance to pop songs and, and did this film piece. I think this was the first work by Phil that I actually kind of came across. Um, and in subsequent works, uh, you know, where he had people in Colombia and Turkey and Indonesia doing karaoke versions of Smith songs. So this idea of music, I think, as, as a way of kind of uh, tapping into these communities and finding some common ground um, is something that you really see in Bring Down the Walls, where he's uh, working with, uh, you know, these formerly incarcerated individuals and using house music um, as this kind of bridge between different communities. So you mentioned there as well, his sort of interest or um, research around the prison system within America started with um, a relationship that he developed with a group of men incarcerated in Sing Sing, which is this max security prison in New York, right? So what actually drew him to this group of people and why did the plan for the project change in form from its initial sort of inception? Yeah, he talks about this in the interview that he had this plan to, uh, to make a film uh, with this group of men, um, you know, that he'd been meeting and working with, uh, which was all about the daily regime. Mm. Um, and, you know, and then they would discuss ideas of kind of social justice and freedom and the political system. Um, and so he did, uh, he, he visited them for about two and a half years or so um, and got permission actually from the, uh, the prison administrators uh, to do a kind of a one day test for make this kind of film, which was very much a, you know, like a, like almost a kind of, a, activist <laughs> didactic kind of uh, approach um, and they saw it as an inflammatory um, so they shut the whole production down um, so in a way I always think with like Phil's work that he, he employs this kind of tactic of, of subterfuge mm-hmm. as a way of kind of using music or kind of pop culture or film references as a way of kind of kind of breaching the walls of the prison and kind of slipping into these institutions um, and that became this kind of very useful I think kind of handle to kind of you know engage not just prisoners you know that were sorry you know, former prisoners as well into this project, uh, but also a wider public. So yes, we see this film that came out of the project, but of course it's important to also say that the project itself was this three-part public art project uh, that he developed with Creative Time in New York, and then also with the Fortune Society, who's this, uh, a group of activists who are looking at alternatives to incarceration, but also help people with re-entry to society as well. I mean, so that project then became, um, you know, for the month of May in 2018, you had uh, this old firehouse, which was converted into a school by day and then a free house music <laughs> nightclub by night. Um, and then through those those methods as well, they also then produced this um, a benefit album uh, with electronic producers and musicians uh, and vocalists who had been previously incarcerated. Um, and, and the proceeds of that um, went towards them. Um, Critical Resistance, the group that you mentioned there at the outset. So does the film sort of offer like an alternative for what the criminal justice system could look like if prison abolition was fully implemented? Like I'm thinking about ideas surrounding sort of transformative justice as as a more sort of restorative way of addressing harm within communities, but also about addressing these sort of wider societal problems that contribute to notions of criminality and and this kind of guise of law and order that currently are used to make a case for a kind of a punitive criminal justice system. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, Certainly a a fair amount of the film are are discussions and workshops, kind of the daytime uh, activities where people talk about, you know, what are these, what are the outcomes of kind of prison abolition? You know, what are the alternatives to it? What are the measures that can um, that can maybe kind of you know deracialize um, you know this this system? And then the, of course that's intercut then with kind of club nights as well. So certainly you know Phil 
you know, he he invites activists to to kind of speak um, that terms. He makes I think he makes a very fleeting appearance during one of the studio sessions where I kind of saw him in the background. I was like, I'm pretty sure that's him here, kind of dancing to house music. But he's very much kind of uh, someone who brought in this kind of you know 100 collaborators from kind of you know uh, dance kind of club nights and things like you know the Bronx Freedom Fund, Black Youth Project, uh, various activists and academics and. Uh, researchers who've been kind of working on this for for ages, um, and so the film touches on some of the some of these ideas, uh, but also really kind of gets across this idea that um, you know law enforcement policies and criminalization um, are very much directed towards Black, Latinx, uh, queer, poor people, mm-hmm. um, and this is also the community that you know that, that house music kind of comes out of as well before it was kind of widely appropriated. Um, I would say that in terms of I guess their 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 goals or their ambitions towards you know the abolition of the prison industrial system. Um, you know there are some heartening signs. I'm very weary of kind of expecting the, the Biden administration, um, even though they're rolling out kind of this really quite um, you know progressive justice reform system, uh, which would include things like say uh, you know eliminating uh, mandatory sentencing for nonviolent crimes, or also kind of getting rid of this disparity between the the sentence that are given for possession of, say, crack cocaine and powder cocaine, um, you know, abolishing private prisons. I mean, these are good measures as well. Um, and also, I saw, I read the other day that in Illinois, they eliminated cash bail, which is something that Phil talks about as well, this idea mm-hmm. that, you know, essentially you can pay your way out of being held in prison for several years while you're awaiting sentencing. Um, so that's obviously kind of things that are built into the system that aren't just about race, but also about class as well. Um, so the film does touch on a number of these uh, possibilities, ways of making it more equitable, I guess. Um, but also, you know, what are the alternatives to that? Why is the default mode always to just incarcerate people? Mm. Yeah, and that, I guess, ties back to this idea and this sort of, I guess, more mainstream push for like, it's more accepted, right? This idea of reform as opposed to abolition, like abolition has maybe seemed like quite a radical change in direction of dealing with like these kind of issues. But um, yeah, I'm kind of interested as well because obviously um, the conversation around prison abolition has become, has been, ha- has been happening for years, right? With Angela Davis's book that came out um, of Prisons Obsolete, which is like a foundational theoretical text in this notion within the last year, um, and I'm thinking about Black, the Black Lives Matter movement that has really gained a huge traction globally. Um, so conversations in the mainstream are becoming much more kind of nuanced and developed around prison abolition. Yeah, I'm also thinking about like books like Jackie Wang's Carceral Capitalism, mm. and even writers like Lola Olufemi, who's a British feminist writer who kind of positions the importance of abolition within a contemporary feminist movement. So yeah, I just think that's like a really interesting development as well. But obviously this film has been happening kind of prior to um the well, yeah, like like I said, I mean it goes back a long time. But it is yeah. it is interesting to see that there's some currency around these ideas now. Um, and you know, myself and Phil, we we talked a bit about this idea that, you know, it was a, it was a truism in American politics that you just don't lose votes. Uh, <laughs> on law and order, um, and this, and you know, um, you know, it was under Clinton, of course, when you talking about super predators among young African American males. You, you, mm. you know, you see this kind of ramped up drive for, you know, uh, mass incarceration, um, 
and the privatization as well, this idea that there's an economy uh, that is now being supported and sustained by, uh, by these policies as well. So I, I you know, obviously welcome the fact that this is a discussion um, that, that's happening and one that certainly Phil's, Phil's film is, in, encourages, um, kind of pushes that idea that you know, there, there must be a better way. I mean, there has to be a better way um, to some extent because actually you're looking at something which is profoundly unfair and we talk about fairness and justice and yet we see that, um, you know, it's 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 not it's not a, a level playing field. It's it's something that's very much directed towards certain disenfranchised communities within America. Mm. And of course, there's also I think you know I mean I, I kind of touched on this before, but you know the the way he kind of he approaches the subject by this kind of alternating between you know some quite dense and at times kind of challenging discussions uh, through the activists that he worked with. Um, with these kind of moments of joy, you know, where you, the music kind of kicks in. I mean, there's some, you know, I think Phil's got a real kind of, you know, he has obviously has an affinity and a love of music, uh, but he has a real ability to kind of convey that kind of sense of freedom uh, through these sequences within the film where you kind of cut between these discussions of, of kind of, you know, like the legal, you know, legalistic strategies and, and, and how to affect social policy uh, to moments of just pure euphoria. Um, and I think that, yeah, it's that kind of, that kind of contrast as well, the way he kind of uh, explores kind of prison through kind of showing the alternative, through showing how kind of music can, can, can you know, affect that sense of freedom or that kind of sense of, of removal from these, these kind of conditions um, that I think is, is so strong across work. Yeah, and I think this idea of, I mean, house music as this kind of mode of resistance is really interesting. And I even read that um, he worked in the Hacienda in Manchester. Yeah. Yeah, he was a student in Manchester back, back then, which is uh, kind of wild. I mean, I always, it, it, I wasn't aware that he was so connected to kind of electronic music in a way. And, um, and maybe this just reflects my own interests as well. But uh, certainly the films that I initially kind of, um, saw by Phil and kind of got interested in, they often used music and, but it was, it very much kind of came from kind of an indie, you know, alternative music. So even I remember in Cork having a big conversation, when he was over in Cork meeting him and having a big conversation about his film, uh, Marxism Today Prologue, where he had uh, Letitia Sadler from Stereo Lab did the soundtrack, or he did this, uh, that film, uh, Tomorrow Was Always Too Long with this kind of soundtrack by Kate LeBon all the way through. So, um, you know, he's obviously got more eclectic tastes than I do. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and actually even the, the title, Bring Down the Walls, comes from this, um, I read, came from this 1986 uh, kind of quite obscure house album by uh, Larry Hurd and Robert Owens uh, that, of course, I then had to search out afterwards. So, uh, you know, certainly he's, uh, he's also kind of conveying this love of house music, I think, through, uh, through the work. Mm. And um, Larry Hurd, as you mentioned, Bring Down the Walls, that's part of the compilation album, yeah. right? That um, so who was involved in this compilation album? Um, yeah. <clears throat> um, so um, he was working with um, a number of electronic musicians um, and also a vocalist who had been incarcerated. Um, uh, certainly uh, when he was put in the, um, uh, the nightlife, he, he worked with these crews like Soul Summit and House of Vogue, uh, Brujas and uh, Poppy Juice, uh, various kind of uh, uh, club collectives as well. Um, and then kind of brought them into um, into this kind of uh, this production process, you know. And yeah, as you mentioned, Larry Hurd and uh, Robert Owens, they uh, they did a reworking of the the the, the song "Bring Down the Walls." Um, so of course, that was a, a big coup, I think, for um, 
uh, for him as well. <clears throat> so Phil Collins has previously employed quite like, um, you could say low budget television or like reportage style documentary to address um, the role of the camera as both this sort of instrument of attraction, attraction and manipulation um, in order to kind of investigate inherent problems of representation within different media forms. Um, and I was wondering if he pursues this style in Bring Down the Walls or has he employed like a different approach according to this like very, yeah, as we've kind of discussed complex and nuanced subject matter. Yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting because, um, you know, certainly I'm thinking of one of those very early films he did, um, you know, How to Make a Refugee, uh, which on some level kind of had this kind of, I don't want to say it's cynical, but it's deconstruction of how, you know, ideas of identity and representation can be used to kind of not manipulate, but maybe affect, you know, policy or kind of affect the way people um, maybe can institute some sort of political change or they can kind of get some sort of media traction out of it. Um, and I think this film, probably not in that same kind of way. I mean, he, he does step back. He lets certainly his collaborators, I mean, it's such a collaborative project, but he really lets them kind of come to the forefront. Uh, he's that kind of presence lingering in the background to some extent. And I think that representation, I mean, you know, by its very nature that when you kind of put the camera, there is something political about putting the camera, um, you know, right to, uh, a, to a uh, to black Latinx queer, you know, to make to give these performers that kind of presence, um, I think, in its own way, has kind of a, a, a politics to it that is um, maybe, you know, it's 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 subtler. I think in a way, it's it's mm -hmm. this kind of um, idea of yes, how how do you let people represent themselves? Well, you you kind of put them in front of the camera and you let them speak. From their own background from their own perspective in the conversation as well you also talk about um the role of cultural institutions and divestment um collins took his work baghdad screen test out of an exhibition at moma ps1 theater of operations why did he remove this work from the show so this is part of the um well, I mean, yeah, there, of course, there's a divestment campaign uh, happening against uh, institutions. Um, uh, this, yeah, his work, Baghdad Screen Test, was supposed to be in the Theatre of Operations show. Um, and so, uh, you know, in this, it's also, you know, MoMA has been heavily criticized. Um, and PS1, I know, has some kind of a different kind of relationship to some extent with the board of MoMA. Um, but nevertheless, um, you know, it's the institution's trustee, Larry Fink, is the CEO of BlackRock and is heavily invested in private prison companies like Core Civic and GEO Group. Um, so on that measure alone, there is a hypocrisy to allowing, um, you know, work that speaks of kind of prison abolition be actually happening institution that is supported by a company that makes profit, that makes its money off of, of, off of, um, off of private prisons. Um, and, you know, you'd also say people like Leon Black and Stephen Tannenbaum, who also um, involved in, in MoMA um, and in museum institutions in America, um, you know, they they profit from mass incarceration. So um, I think it's a, you know, it's a standmate. We've seen it with the, you know, the Whitney and the, and Safari Land uh, thing as well, and of course Tate. Um, so you know, it's it's part of a reckoning. I think that you know, as artists, they have, you know, as artists, you have that agency to um, to make a stand based on your political beliefs and not support institutions that gain their kind of economic 
you know, their, their economic backing from people who profit off of the misery of others. Um, so I think um, it feels true to what Phil's work is all about, uh, that it's not just about um, communicating those ideas to the public, uh, but also taking a stand against where those things are shown and how they're shown. Perfect. Thank you. I think that's all we have time for today. Um, thanks so much for talking with me, Chris, about Phil Collins' work. Well, thank you for having me. I'd like to welcome my second guest, Bob Dickinson, who is a writer based in Manchester. And he's here today to be talking with me about his feature, Anti-Work Work, in which he asks if we can ever free ourselves from capitalist pressures to keep working and whether artistic strategies such as Gustav Metzger's art strike or Josef Strauss' embrace of non-productivity offer ways to resist the corporate grip on our aesthetic universe. Bob, you open your feature talking about the direct impact that COVID-19 has had on work and working people, causing the highest levels of unemployment since the last widespread recession in 1994. But you also touch upon work's position in society more generally within the 21st century and how there is a widening gap between the wealthiest and poorest members of society. And you touch upon how work occupies the mind. How has work changed and what impact is this having on our society? One of the most important sort of periods I can remember living through uh, at my great age <laughs> was the 1980s and uh, deindustrialization in this particular part of the world in the north of England when uh, lots of traditional forms of heavily industrial manufacturing work and uh, work such as you know mining and steel there was increasing levels of unemployment and then work began to change and become less traditional it was much more about service economies ever since then i think there's been in places like the north of england and in other parts of the world a problem about meaningful work i think that has a, an effect on mental health the other big thing that that i've and you've lived through, which is 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 the impact of uh, new techno of of uh, digital technology and computers and so on, which has meant that we've we that's that's given rise to what I referred another thing I refer to in the in the feature, which is this idea of immaterial labour, which is where you're you're working or where you you do you you work on something, but you don't actually necessarily get paid for it. And it's it, it uh, it's due to the fact that you're 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 making some kind of contribution to a to a highly uh, mechanized, highly uh, digitalized um, economic model, uh, and so uh, you know how do, how does that and that contributes to value that can creates value. The classic example is well, the first one that comes to mind is when you go to a supermarket and you use the uh, the uh, automatic checkout, you don't take it through uh, a manual checkout, you do your own checking out. Therefore, you're helping the supermarket in a way, you're, make, you're doing labor on behalf of the supermarket with the help of a computer in the, in the checkout system. Mm. So uh, this is, these are some of the ways in which labor and work have changed in my experience, but I think what my starting point for this article was really that work, having worked through um, the past year of the pandemic, in which in which 
many of us have been fortunate enough to work from home uh, and use this system that we're using now, Zoom, to, to have conferences, uh, whereas many other people can't do that. They don't have the choice. They have to commute. They're at much greater risk of uh, contracting the virus because they have to use public transport. They have to go to an office or a, or a place where large numbers of people are working together. And you see that in a place like Manchester, and sure in London and other places as well, uh, poorer areas uh, where people have to go to work have much higher levels of uh, a viral, con viral uh, virus contamination and, and hospitalization than wealthier areas where people can stay at home and work from home. You cite um, Herman Melville's short story, Bartleby the Scrivener from 1853. Um, yeah. Could you tell me a little bit about the story and, and what relevance it has to contemporary working conditions today? Melville wrote this story. This is written by Herman Melville, who was famous, obviously, for most famous for writing Moby Dick. Mm. But in 1853, he'd written all these novels about seafaring, and he was wanting to write about something different, and he had a fear that. Uh, the type of novels he had written so far, which had been quite successful, were he was at risk if he if he tr changed his way of working, he was at risk of letting his family down, and they'd complain about lack of income and so on. So he started questioning himself about the ways in which he worked and and the repetitive nat nature of writing. He wrote this short story called Bartleby the Scrivener. And Bartleby is a character who works, he, he's a newcomer, he works in um, a legal office in Wall Street, New York, which was where all the legal offices were in the 1850s. And he's a scrivener, which means he copies legal documents by hand. So they had no other way of copying other than by hand in 1853. <laughs> at first, Bartleby's very good at what he does, but after a while, he starts to. Re, re, respond to requests to to do work with the words I would prefer not to and this has um, a really detrimental effect on the morale of the other workers in the office who start to complain that Bartleby is putting them off and Bartleby is getting away with not doing anything so the guy in charge of the office the lawyer who's telling you the story uh, eventually has to fire Bartleby, but Bartleby refuses to leave. He, dis he decides he's going to live on the premises, but he's still refusing to do any writing. And eventually the lawyer who's telling you this story has to throw Bartleby out and he ends up in prison. And of course in prison when he's, uh, the lawyer pays for him to be fed. And when he's offered food, Bartleby's response is, I would prefer not to. And he starves himself to death. Many uh, philosophers have sort of looked at Bartleby and in relation to the politics surrounding labor and work and have written about it. So people like Deleuze have written about Bartleby and Agamben, the Italian philosopher. And uh, I, I wanted to refer to Bartleby in this piece because there is a kind of void 
I, I use the word void and other people have used it about what Bartleby exposes in what he does, which is uh, if you say that you refuse that, or he's, he doesn't refuse, that's, that's, what he's, that's the key thing about what he's doing. He's not refusing to work, he's preferring not to work. So he can't be forced directly. He's exposing the void in work by, uh, by exposing the meaningless of, meaning, meaninglessness of it uh, by mm. saying, I would prefer not to. <laughs> it means, well, what, why do, it's like saying, uh, I don't want to, I'm not quite, I'm not so interested in doing that. I'd much rather do something else. But what is it you can offer me that's more meaningful than what you are already offering me? And you labelled um, the Austrian artist Josef Strau um, as contemporary art's equivalent of Bartleby. Um, so could you perhaps tell me a bit about who he is and why you have given him this title? Uh, Strau is a, a German artist and he became an artist in the 1980s in Cologne. Mm. And he became uh, famous, well, he's his. <laughs> He, I suppose, he could. You could say his most well-known uh, offering, his most well-known description of of what he does, starts with this idea of the non, what he calls the non-productive attitude, which is he claims how he became who he is now in Cologne in the 1980s during a period when it was possible for artists to not do any work. Mainly, this is due to the fact that the there was a sort of living soap opera going on in Cologne at the time with artists uh, creating a kind of mystique about themselves, about the life of being an artist being more important than actually producing any work. And I think Strau has made a big thing about this. He, you know, he doesn't tell you exactly very much about the important work that was done by other artists in Cologne at the time. He is using this idea of non-productivity to, to actually produce quite a lot of work. He does produce work but it's very largely based on text. If you go to a Strau exhibition, he has produced posters, pamphlets, and stories. They seem to be autobiographical. They are long and they're rambling. They never seem to have a conclusion. I've compared his writing style to Lawrence Stern's novel, 18th century novel, Tristram Shandy, which is a kind of endless, uh, tall, tale uh, uh, which is all about deferral it's about not getting to the end of the story it's about not actually really being able to tell you a story because you keep getting distracted and it's hilariously funny I don't think Strau is quite so funny but Strau he certainly uses deferral and he certainly uses rambling texts that are a way of partly, I suppose, describing his life. And it's, this goes back to this idea of the, the life of the artist being a justification for saying that you are an artist, you adopt a lifestyle. But it's also a way of creating, in his case, he ends up being able to create objects, which uh, include you know, highly disposable things like lampshades, which he buys in charity shops and car boot sales and things and he puts his text around the lampshade or integrates it into a lampshade he says makes it illuminated text literally Strau took me into this world of speech it's to do with writing as a form of labor but also it's of writing as a way of not producing 
perfect artworks. It's a way of the artist not getting to that point, but deferring. And you also talk about um, Gustav Metzger, who has who sort of develops this concept of auto-destructive art, and and you tie this to sort of uh, sort of what's going on at the time and Lucy R. Lippard's notion of like the yeah. materialization. Um, could you perhaps talk about that a little bit as well? Yeah, I mean, I think well, Metzger's a uh, well-known artist in Britain, uh, or he was, and um, I, I talk about that because he was working in the early 1960s uh, during sort of height of the Cold War, the fear of nuclear attack, and his engagement with politics took him into the, almost into the same area we're in now with uh, our concern for environmental collapse, and uh, he's, so he's using art, or his attitude to art, uh, his self-destruction art uh, as a, a way of commenting on the way the world is self-destructing or is in danger of self-destructing mm. and uh, the illustration in the article is the is the the artwork he did in Manchester flailing trees which is a set of trees that are uh, that were outside the Whitworth Art Gallery in Manchester, the trees that were placed upside down so that they auto-destructed, they, uh, they were obviously dead <laughs> and they just basically fell to bits. The roots were in the air, uh, you had to walk past them every time you went into the gallery, they were unavoidable. Uh, Metzger's other works were similarly imbued with this idea of self-destruction, they, they, would, they would destroy themselves so that they were in a way, he's kind of commenting on the art market, on being an artist, creating a piece of work that can be sold and can continue to exist and to accrue and uh, value, and the value can potentially increase. And he's sort of questioning the whole the idea of the art market, and he is commenting on the the political situation in the world. And I think you know he relating him to to Lippard. Lippard was Lippard is still working, obviously, in writing, but her book, Six Years, which I've got here, is a sort of key text in the recording and the description of the development of what, what we now, would now call conceptual art in the 1960s. So she was looking at artists who, took, who were kind of moving away from the studio, moving away from the gallery into different spaces, people like Richard Serra, Lawrence Wiener, uh, Dan Graham, and, 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 and Lippard also became interested and still is interested in feminist art, which is obviously in the 70s, 60s and 70s was less well known and was much more part of small undocumented networks of artists who, who would communicate with each other, and Lippard developed this idea of looking again at artists, looking, talking to artists, looking at their work, but then revisiting it and talking about it again. And so it's much more networked, less centralized, less objective, objectivized way of, of looking at, at the art objects or the art, art objects created by, by artists. And it's a different way of thinking about how artists 
uh, see themselves as well. This uh, dematerialization of art and the questioning of the art object brings the feature into thinking about what it is that artists can do about their own work. Yeah, I mean, with um, Metzger's work in the 60s and obviously Strauss' practice is grounded and began in the 80s. So how um, can we think about these as like resistors to capitalism, maybe like within a contemporary context? Because obviously, I guess like younger artists producing work now are working within very different material and labor conditions, as you kind of touched upon in the beginning with this um, autonomous idea of immaterial labor and how that's changed. Um, so yeah, how can we look at these as ways to think about the present and obviously going forward in the future? I'm interested in thinking about work as a habit, as something that we sort of, almost like a disease. <laughs> I mean, I would agree. <laughs> I mean, I finished up the article with a short reference to the performance art group Forced Entertainment, who are based in Sheffield and whose work I really like. Most entertainment workers, as they improvise everything, they start off with nothing, except maybe some completely worthless costumes, which are really on the verge of looking, you know, when they put the costumes on, they look a bit, it looks like people having a joke. And then they work from nothing over a series of months until, until they've got a scripted performance. And they, so they improvise, they film the improvisation, they look at the film, pick out the bits they like, they keep building on the improvisation and the filming until they've got a scripted performance that they actually repeat exactly the same way, more or less. And recent performances that I've seen uh, included this piece, uh, Out of Order, which is six uh, performers, three women, three men. Uh, they've got these kind of very badly painted clown faces and they're sitting around a, a desk, a bit like managers in a meeting. And they've got, they're sitting on these office type chairs and they're just looking at each other. And then suddenly one of them looks at the, uh, another one and there's a sudden moment of his hostility. There's no words spoken in this piece. And they start to chase each other around the table, round and round threatening each other with violence. And then this pattern of chasing and then trying to sit down and come to some kind of agreement keeps repeating itself. They just, they sit, they try and, they try and agree with each other, they don't say anything, and then suddenly there's this moment of hostility and they go around the table again. Uh, and this seemed to me to be <laughs> the perfect representation of current labor practice to me in some way because it's it's just a habit it's a, like a drug that you can't get rid of you don't really know how to get out of this circuitous uh, routine that it's not quite like a routine because it's never the same twice but it does follow a pattern you're asking me my what i think about the way artists younger artists ought, ought to think about work well Obviously, I'm not trying to tell artists not to work, not to make work, because artists have this basic instinct that tells them they, they should be working at something, <laughs> they should be making something. And obviously, thinking is an important form of work. Uh, but I 
uh, I suspect that uh, all forms of work nowadays have been uh, captured and taken over by corporate uh, capitalism. And what I am trying to encourage is, is a constant sort of questioning based on art history, I suppose, or recent art history, uh, as a way of preparing the ground for further uh, explorations of the way you can do something new with, with, the, with the ability that you've got and the potential that you've got. I'd like to welcome my third guest to the Art Monthly talk show, Lauren Velvick. Lauren is a writer and curator based in Lancashire and is here today to talk with me about her profile on the artist Jade Montserrat. Lauren, perhaps we could begin with you telling me who is Jade Montserrat and when did you first encounter her work? Jade Montserrat is an artist um, based in Scarborough in North Yorkshire. She has quite a lot going on at the moment. But I first encountered her work and met her when she showed at Bluecoat in Liverpool, well, after her residency. I was working there at the time. And yeah, at that point was kind of interested in the way she worked. She was approaching working within an art centre and have kind of followed her practice ever since. As well, her practice involves kind of a number of different media. There's um, kind of drawings and watercolours, wall drawings, performance. Um, but then this is all sort of tied together with a sort of background of research and kind of thinking around education and art education in particular. You open the profile talking about artists having to navigate their position within the art world, particularly thinking about their relationships with institutions and their career trajectories and their reputations as being sort of characterised as either an easy or difficult person to work with, which you say produces exclusionary structures that impose and reward acquiescence. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on sort of in what ways does this produce exclusionary structures and why um, or what would art institutions' motivations be behind rewarding an artist's acquiescence? Maybe a good frame to kind of put this in is this idea of care that's obviously on a lot of people's lips at the moment and is quite a big part of um, Jade's practice or something that she refers to a lot and talks about a lot. Um, and it's kind of thinking about um, care in terms of what artists and art workers as well, because um, those two, uh, I suppose, categories cross over, I think, for Jade, um, sort of need to be able to perform within art spaces as opposed to what's wanted or needed from them, I suppose. Um, and I think, I mean, Generally, the way these structures are reproduced by a kind of like a lack of resources and because it's easier to do the easy thing when you are living in like a state of austerity as opposed to abundance. Um, And so that's kind of why I think with the example of Jade, it takes... um, Well, I think that's why it's important to represent it as an integral part of her practice because it wouldn't be her practice if she wasn't questioning things as she goes along and if something isn't right um questioning why it's happening that way um and I think I kind of think it's important to emphasize that in this context as part of 
the artist's practice because I think it's important not to infer that other practitioners who maybe do go along in certain contexts and necessarily doing something wrong or bad. It's being able to be like difficult and in inverted commas or kind of stand against exclusionary structures, I think has to be part of a, yeah, like a, a practice that has to do with care and is something that you have to kind of be always aware of, I suppose. Sorry, I feel like I've perhaps not answered your question that well. If there's anything you want to go back to, but I feel like it's so tied into like the artwork as well. Mm. You were talking about the issue of care that is explored throughout Jade's work. And in your feature lockdown that was published in our June issue, you talk about care as something that's somewhat overused and neutralised, especially in discourse around contemporary art. So I guess it would be interesting to hear about why and in, in what way, sorry, this term has been overused and also in what way does Jade's work push back against this by using care within her practice? I think, um, I mean, I suppose like any, everything becomes commodified and to some extent overused and care is like that, like with so many things and kind of within like arts programming you know when there's a term that you can sort of tack on and therefore insert whatever you're doing into like a wider narrative that's quite trendy I mean I think obviously that happens as it does with lots of other terms as well and like with the earlier feature yeah that kind of did stem from this thinking like wanting to think quite carefully about how care is used in so I suppose the way arts programmes are like communicated publicly, which again is why Jay's practice is interesting because that's something she thinks about like as an artist and was kind of thinking about, okay, but whose practices actually are engaging with this in a way that, um, I don't want to kind of say feels authentic, I think that's quite the right word, but sort of critical and I think I quite like the term like clear-eyed in response to this, like understanding the limitations and engaging nonetheless. Whereas, yeah, it's like the way everyone's been kind of referring to like, I don't really need another wellness like webinar right now, you know? <laughs> so kind of putting it in that context that I'm sure most people listening would be well overly familiar with. And that again, as we were discussing before, like care kind of has to be something critical and that's sometimes difficult, I think, in the context of the arts and art institutions. Yeah, no, and I guess there's especially this hypocrisy that exists, especially in the wake of Black Lives Matter and like institutions putting out these huge statements or just even putting a black square on their Instagram page, for example, and then talking about care, but not really engaging with what it means to practice care as an institution, if an institution is even able to practice care. Yeah, this is something we actually spoke about that kind of couldn't make it into the profile in any coherent way but um just about the way I mean it's not really a practice but maybe it kind of happens in more than this case like institutions and holders of collections either feeling themselves or kind of declaring themselves inequipped to deal carefully and openly with the like context of their collections and the histories of those collections and it's this kind of like quite kind but still insistence that 
no you have to though (laughs) they exist so you just have to like you have to find a way and you know and so that's why it's kind of interesting looking at like why I wanted to again speak to for this profile and sneaking to go at Manchester Art Gallery because it seemed from the outside as though there was a interesting engagement with collections going on there but again <laughs> like kind of thinking about this context of like arts workers and what's going on behind the scenes and how things are presented to the public it's kind of important to speak to yeah the people actually working on the program and kind of doing the work to find that out yeah there's a really great quote actually in the piece from Nikita Gill talking about the museum collection and the way Jade's work has kind of facilitated the shift of the museum's space. The quote is not as a container of knowledge, but as somewhere you can exchange it. And yeah, it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on that and like how you think that Jade's work facilitates this kind of knowledge exchange. I suppose um, kind of a good way to think about that would be this idea of or at least aiming to be not extractive. So for the earlier feature, I got to read like a little bit of a draft of Jade's thesis. I think this has kind of cropped up in other interviews that she's done as well, that a kind of important part of what she's doing is trying to move away from or find ways of operating in the art world and with collections in a non-extractive way. And I suppose this forming of a dialogue and engaging with any collection is really part of that. And it's interesting because it's kind of, in that particular example, it's part of, I think it's Innova who kind of initiated this collection scheme. It might be worth kind of acknowledging the different types of collections here. So I was thinking there are the historical museum collections that are often started in a particular way and continue, and then specifically contemporary art collections that maybe function slightly differently. And it felt like this was able to engage with both of those realities of collections by sort of submitting to being collected by Manchester Art Gallery as part of this scheme. I suppose there was all this insistence on engaging critically with the collection there and then working with this sort of young curator who I think notably like mentioned that she's um, like worked up from being like a visitor assistant at one of the other galleries in Manchester um, and has quite a deep engagement with the collection as something civic yeah so it's really quite important to sort of emphasize Nikita's understanding of the collection as something owned by the people of Manchester as a kind of Mancunian um, themselves and seeing it as something that should be drawn from and engaged with and that was in a way kind of held up by the citizenry and the kind of creative community there and so was something that, that they should draw on and I think that's um, kind of important to like curatorial scheme with that. Mm. There seems to be like a strong collaborative relationship between Jade and Nikita. I'm thinking specifically about an event of um, a performance uh, I think it was for the opening of the Constellations exhibition where Jade is reading out her text for Nikita to write it with charcoal I think all along the gallery walls, which is kind of really nice sort of, I guess it shows like trust and like this sort of mutual care or relationship between the two of them, which you don't necessarily always see as visibly that relationship between curators and the artists, especially I guess in like a big institution like Manchester Art Gallery. Yeah, those relationships that are, I suppose in a way, part of how 
institutions and exhibitions function is for those to be obscure and for the presentation to be the only thing that's kind of publicly available and kind of refusing to do that I think is quite interesting in this context and then I think as well to kind of think into that performance and the other kind of crossovers I suppose between Jade's work and what Nikita is doing at Manchester Art Gallery is, I suppose, always like ass- assuming bodies in the space. Nikita described setting up the space with chairs and a table. And so it's always assumed that it's not fully kind of existing or functioning if there aren't people in there being in the space and reacting to it. Yeah, it's kind of because with the other wall drawing performances that um, Jade has done that sort of have evolved from being a public performance to being something done privately as part of an installation process. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's something kind of interesting going on there. Um, mm, they're really interesting. Collaboration and like collective modes of working seem to be sort of championed within Jade's work. Obviously, we've talked about her like working relationship with Nikita at Manchester Art Gallery, but I'm also thinking about um, the collaborative film that Jade made with Webb Ellis that you discuss in the profile, Chronicle IA. Yeah, it would be great to hear a little bit more about the film um, and also how you talk about how it communicates embodied pleasure. Um, and yeah, it would be, be good to hear your thoughts a little bit more about that. Yeah, um, yeah. one thing that I found quite interesting when researching a bit and finding out more about this relationship with Webb Ellis was kind of these quite long-standing ongoing collaborations over like years and years, which um, the kind of work with Webb Ellis is one of these where some works that were maybe created a few years ago are kind of being really reflected on now um and I think that's maybe something worth emphasizing in terms of the collective collaborative work that um I kind of thought was worth bringing up in the profile was this I suppose method of instead of like bringing together a group in a particular place and then them dispersing again kind of bringing people along to different places and connecting them up and then maybe stepping back and so I thought yeah that kind of um maybe it's right word like kind of implicit building of networks rather than doing it in a really formal way I suppose yeah and then back to the film I mean that was kind of just a a really good example I suppose of something that I personally find quite striking in Jade's work and I think it, she does really successfully is to be able to talk about really harrowing things kind of one second but then put them in a context whereby they're not everything and they're there and they need dealing with but we're all you know we're also in this other world that um yeah you kind of have to be able to derive joy and pleasure from in order to do something about or deal or cope with the things that need dealing and coping with I suppose um and I think that's kind of like in that particular film that for me is what seemed to be going on I suppose um and again was just struck by the kind of use of pink and plants and flowers and things while yeah discussing yeah the kind of eugenic aspects of how the government had dealt with the pandemic and things like that um yeah I found the use of language in the film really interesting because it was like very straight and descriptive in parts but it still felt very poetic I really enjoyed that film. I think like my grandma lives in Scarborough and I like <laughs> kind of grew up there. So I felt very nostalgic for it in a way. But yeah, again, like coupled with this 
like realization of this sort of pandemic we have been living through and but also who it's oppressing and impacting the most is as you say uh very harrowing sorry i was gonna say about scarborough there's like a quote from i think we're playing i think it might be from her thesis about measuring everywhere by everywhere and everything by the same seaside town that she's kind of grown up in and there's kind of that aspect as well of being artist of a certain level and being based in this like relatively remote space and so I thought it was kind of relevant to think about what it means to be simultaneously showing and engaging with like your kind of local museum and quite big contemporary art spaces and like various other things online kind of all at the same time all of which kind of communicate in slightly different registers I suppose. Mm. One thing I kind of want to quickly talk about as well I guess ties back to this idea of language but also um, I'm particularly interested in how her work kind of uses language as an educational or pedagogic tool I was particularly interested in the kind of glossary of terms that was produced alongside the instituting care exhibition and there was also like a massive bibliography which was just like amazing but yeah it'd be great to hear a little bit about the exhibition instituting care and yeah your thoughts on how her work produces these kind of um yeah educational tools I guess as a way of like accessing these spaces and her work yeah because I was kind of just thinking then about the like Jay's practice of doing readings kind of as a way kind of metabolising and working through your thoughts on the text itself, but also kind of offering it out. And I suppose instituting care is kind of maybe operating with a similar mechanism of kind of offering this sort of overwhelming, in a way, library of books, but creating, again, this kind of cocooning sort of structure. And I suppose there's been a... I'm kind of kind of comparing it in my head now to various other kind of artist gallery reading rooms and how they are set up and how they kind of function. This creation of this kind of like pod that just is full of books and the materials used in it is kind of symbolic of various things. But thinking about the words as well and the glossary in particular, like I suppose this is an example of Jade also engaging with these things around the exhibition, so like language used in marketing and how it's communicated and often what goes into that kind of press release or marketing copy or blurb that goes in like the newspaper listings or something is the way that the work is communicated to a public I suppose and so I found it really interesting that that's something that Jade engages with directly it's not secondary it's like a kind of integral part and then kind of going beyond that to think about yeah what do these words mean in this particular context what does it mean to use them in this context um do we all understand the same thing by them and yeah, again, like having that as an integral part of a like engagement program accompanying the exhibition, as opposed to kind of designing some wraparound events that maybe have something to do with it, but are more kind of inspired by, like these are like integral parts of it. It'd be kind of remiss not to then think about the charcoal wall drawings as well, which have produced um, the performance called No Need for Clothing is what produces the charcoal wall drawings, which are then part of instituting care. And like Jade's talked a lot about how this is a really affecting piece of work for her and kind of erasing the words at some points is an important part of it. But then the way they, that charcoal, like infects anyone who comes into contact with it. And I suppose like, you know, it's a relevant anecdote that I, I work with Jade again in Hull 
and there was like there were kind of various instances of people going, "Oh, I've got charcoal on me," and you just kind of have to like, "Cool." <laughs> like, um, like that's the nature of the material. Thank you to my three guests, Chris Clark, Bob Dickinson, and Lauren Velvick, and thank you to everyone for tuning in. I've been your host, Alex Hull, and this has been the Art Monthly Talk Show.